Welcome to Jesus Has Left the Building, where we hear from guests all over the country who have been engaging in creative, bold, and fluid outside the box, I mean outside the church building ministry, that has inspired us to think outside the box and outside the church building too. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, activists, scholars, authors, liturgy makers, where God's beloved community has left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Hello! We are thrilled to welcome Jeff Scholes and Kristen Dumay to the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast. Yay! Woo-hoo. Hey guys! How are ya? Hi, good to be here. Jeff Scholes is a local Colorado Springs friend, and so we're so glad that he joined us today. He is the Associate Professor of Religious Studies in the Department of Philosophy and the Director of the Center for Religious Diversity and Public Life at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And he is going to be a part of our host team today. I'm so glad, Jeff, that you are with us. You are a gem for me and my family, and especially for my husband, Roger. We love it. And we are thrilled to introduce Kristen Dumay, who is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She is also a New York Times bestselling author of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. It is a beautiful read and it is very timely. Jeff is bringing Kristen to Colorado Springs through his Center of Religious Diversity and Public Life at UCCS this month. And we are honored to get to know her and her story and her work here on Jesus Has Left the Building. So both Jeff Jeff and Kristen and whoever wants to start can start. Tell us any more about you that I already haven't said um, anything significant to this conversation. And I don't know, maybe something our listeners would love to know about you personally and your work. I guess I'll start. Um, Thank you, Marta and Mandy and Kristen, of course, for for being here. Um, Yeah, you you got the titles down for me. I write uh, pretty much exclusively on the relationship between religion and sport. Um, and uh, I am a from Dallas. I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan. So therefore I'm pulling for the Chiefs on Sunday. Our, my, my hatred of the Eagles is only surpassed by my love for the Dallas Cowboys. So go Mahomes and the Chiefs on, uh, on Sunday. Um, I'm not sure you're with any sports fans right now, so all of us. Some people are aware of a thing called the Super Bowl on Sunday, right? Oh yeah, I forgot. Right. Uh huh. Uh, but uh, anyway, so yeah, I'll be watching um, with with uh, enthusiasm on on Sunday, and um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I I love Marta and her husband Roger and their family too. So um, this is a real treat. So thank you. Great. Well, I've got no real sports stories. Uh, usually I, I get questions right up front. Uh, are you an evangelical? And so I thought I'd just, you know, answer that one up front, but it's, it's not a really quick answer. It's, it depends on how you're defining the term, which is always a problem. Uh, so I, um, 
little little background. I grew up in a conservative Christian community family, um, but one that did not identify as evangelical at all in a little Dutch immigrant community. My mom was an immigrant from the Netherlands. My dad, uh, an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church, this Dutch ethnic uh, Reformed tradition. And so I grew up identifying against evangelicalism. Um, Billy Graham was not really spoken about in my home, right? just not one of us. And um, so, so no, I didn't consider myself an evangelical. I never really have. That said, uh, looking back, I realized that I was deeply shaped by evangelicalism through popular culture. So we had one bookstore in my small town in Iowa, and it was a Christian bookstore, and all those books were from evangelical publishers. I listened to Christian music only. The top 40 was sinful. And so right through the popular culture, I was really exposed to evangelicalism, and I think that's the case for a lot of American Christians. So this is probably the first question you always get, Kristen, but um, what is, and I have a feeling we all we all know the answer to this question, but perhaps some of the uh, listeners do not. Uh, what is the origin story of the book, Jesus and John Wayne? How did it come to uh, be in your mind that this is a book that needed to get out? Mm -hmm. So I'm a historian of religion and gender. And it was long ago, my first year at Calvin University, where I still teach. So back in around 2004, 2005, I was teaching a course in uh, U.S. history, and I decided to introduce my students, many of whom were evangelicals, uh, but introduce my students to the concept of gender in history. And I thought Teddy Roosevelt was a really great way to do this. And so I lectured on Teddy Roosevelt and how he embodied this kind of new kind of white masculinity that was imperialistic and it was connected to economic shifts and to foreign policy and to race and all sorts of things. And after that class, a couple of guys came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there is a book that you have got to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And uh, I took their advice. I'd heard of the book and I just thought, not really my thing. Everybody was reading it at the time all the guys in their dorms, my own church was hosting men's book groups on it. And I was trying to avoid it as best I could, but I took their advice, went down to family Christian bookstore, bought a copy and I opened it up and I saw right up front, a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And I saw how Eldridge went on to sketch a very militant, militaristic conception of Christian masculinity. And I saw he wasn't really drawing from the scriptures much at all, but from mythical warriors and heroes and people like Mel Gibson's William Wallace. And I, I found that fascinating. And this was also the early years of the Iraq war when we saw all the survey data and how white evangelicals were outliers. They were much more likely than other Americans to support the war, support preemptive war in general, condone torture. And I just did what I was trained to do, which is to ask what might one of these things have to do with the other. So that's the deeper backstory. I worked on the book for about a year and a half, and then I set it aside for a variety of different reasons. And it wasn't until the fall of 2016 when I picked it back up because I realized so many of the questions that people were asking about Donald Trump and his evangelical supporters, how could they support this man? Um, I realized that history could tell us a lot of the answers to that question. So Kristen, talk to us a little bit about this character of John Wayne. Like why John Wayne? What's enduring about him? What 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 is the connection kind of in a nutshell there for you? Um, with this idea? 
Yeah. You know, I didn't set out to write a book about John Wayne at all. And I, if I could have found a way to cram Jesus and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart into a title, I might've gone with that. Uh, but John Wayne was another example of the kind of Hollywood heroes and, and kind of mythical ideals of rugged masculinity that were so popular in evangelical books on Christian manhood still are today. And so I, I started noticing that John Wayne was popping up over and over again as the icon of Christian masculinity. And, um, and so I just started gathering those and saw that, um, you know, what this was really doing and what it, what it communicated was that, um, it kind of blurs the line between what is secular and what is religious. And that's one of the themes of this book. Uh, evangelicals define themselves as Bible-believing Christians, right? That's their self-identity. And like I said, uh, a lot of these books on Christian masculinity didn't have a lot of biblical exegesis in them. And um, instead, they were inspired by cultural tropes, by secular heroes, right? And then that was like baptized into like, this is Christian manhood. And what that ends up doing doesn't just uphold this ideal of a quote unquote Christian man, but it changes Christianity itself into this militant faith, into a faith that has to be defended ruthlessly where the ends will justify the means. And John Wayne is such a great example. I mean, not just because he pops up all the time, but he also points to what is consistent in this, um, this kind of evangelical hero worship, which is when they're looking for our ideals of Christian manhood, they're they're always looking to the white man, to the the good guy with the gun, the white man who, like John Wayne in all of his greatest hits, would bring order through violence. John Wayne in the Sands of Iwo Jima, the Green Berets, the Alamo, right? Um, and in the Wild West, he was the good man with the gun. Um, and and it was just such a uh it, it made so much sense. And I think it was deeply meaningful kind of culturally. And so as a cultural historian, I thought this was um, a strand worth pulling through. Yeah, recently I had I had watched some some show, some Western, um, and I thought, OK, so, you know, it was a series. It might have been Yellowstone or something. Right. Um, and 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 have you guys seen Yellowstone? Yeah. Everybody tells me I must see it right now. I've, yeah. I've, I've got kids. And so we're, we're doing a little bit more child appropriate uh, right. binge watching in the evenings. This one definitely isn't. And so, you know, right. I watched it and when I was sort of done with it, I was like, okay, from watching this, I can sort of see how our American culture has been shaped by yes. that story and that journey out West and, you know, with all the guns and the um, and sort of the fear of the other and um, the, the complications with indigenous communities. But what I didn't know until I started reading your book, and this is like a holy cow for me, and this is what I want our listeners. I did not know that Billy Graham was such a formative figure in our culture. Like, yes. And so I am, I am very, very much, I don't have any background to evangelicalism at all, by the way, like there's not even, I have no, there's nothing. And um, so I wasn't super familiar with him. I didn't, I didn't listen to Christian music and I definitely did not read those kinds of books. Um, but um, wow. Like, how did you, how did you, and see, this is me going off script a little bit. So sorry, friends. <laughs> no, that's but great. Like, 
But how did you like hook that you first were like, okay, there's a story here. Yeah. So as a historian of American evangelicalism, uh, Billy Graham has to be at the center of that story. And like I said, I, I grew up in a home that where Billy Graham wasn't a, a revered mm-hmm. figure at all. Uh, but then I went off to graduate school and I studied at uh, University of Notre Dame, which was then uh, and, and still really is one of the centers for the study of American evangelicalism, also Catholicism. But they uh, uh, had a number of evangelical um, grad students who came there to work with my advisor, uh, George Marston. And that's where I kind of learned real evangelicalism, right? My classmates were from uh, uh, Wheaton College and Moody, Moody Bible Institute and not just evangelicalism, but fundamentalism also from Bob Jones, as in Bob Jones, the fourth was one of my classmates briefly. Right. And so this is where I learned like, oh, this is evangelicalism. Right. Um, so and and among those folks, right, Billy Graham just had this revered role, well, particularly for the evangelicals, not not quite so much for um, the Bob Jones factions. But um um, so, so I just knew it was, he was significant. And then I learned about Billy Graham through history books, right? Cause it, it, it wasn't in my home growing up. And so I read books that other historians had written about Billy Graham. So I actually did not realize just how shocking the Billy Graham of Jesus and John Wayne was going to be to readers. I should have, I should have realized this, but the thing is what I write about Billy Graham is not new. This is, I didn't do archival research for this. I am quoting secondary sources. I am quoting other scholars who have already written books. The thing is evangelicals didn't read those books. Evangelicals tend to control their own narrative, right? I talked about these Christian bookstores, evangelical publishing. They write their own stories. They shop at their own bookstores, at least up until recently. Um, you know, they can buy them online. And so they craft their own narrative. And they told one story about Billy Graham and this other side of Billy Graham, which was always a part of who he was and what he was doing, just didn't get any airtime. And so that has been really disruptive for people. And in in some ways, that's like the book as a whole, right? They have for so long written their own histories that it is shocking now for readers to see there's more to the story. In fact, the most frequent response that I get from evangelical readers, and I get responses nearly every day, and it's been two and a half years, but they're messaging me, right? They're reaching out. And uh, the 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 most common response is some form of this is the story of my life but i never saw how all these pieces fit together like how did i not know and yet they're intimately familiar with the story that i tell the popular culture side i have a funny story which i think is is actually related here um my dad loved john wayne and um we Every time, you know, this shows come on on TNT or TBS or whatever. And um, every time either El Dorado Dorado. or Rio Bravo, Rio Bravo. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Every time they came on, my dad would like yell through the house. John Wayne is on. Everybody come down and watch. And it's like (laughs) the funny thing about these two movies, which were my dad's two favorite movies, is they're they're the exact same movie. (laughs) Yes. except like the sidekick in one is named Mississippi and he's Colorado in the other, but it's actually <laughs> oh, the exact same story. And like, as you're, as you're talking about this, like this, this, you know, creating your own narrative, like it's actually really interesting, right? Because we, we, 
we package it in different ways. We call it Mississippi or Colorado, yes. but it's the same story over and over and over again. And we eschew everything like that's outside of that. Yeah. Like even that small example, I think is a part of, of this whole research that you're doing. Absolutely. Right. And then he, I mean, he, he does that in multiple movies uh, mm-hmm. or the movies that he stars in. Right. So, you know, Red River to Sands of Iwo Jima, what he does is he kind of takes this heroic narrative of, you know, the cowboy taming the wild west, this good guy with a gun. And then he, he reenacts that in the World War II drama, which is, of course, the good war, right? When you're fighting against the Nazis, it's easy to be the good guy. And then he reenacts that in the Alamo and in the Green Berets, where you then take this heroic American um, kind of mythology from the Wild West, from World War II, and then put it right into uh, onto the battlefields of Vietnam. And that was the Vietnam that many Americans and particularly many conservative Americans wanted to um, to hold up as the true version, but it was a myth. I think of the searchers as well, which is yeah. a, a beautifully shot movie by John Ford, but yeah, same, same plot, same everything. Um, uh, I'll ask another uh, next question. So Kristen, you write about kind of this, um, juxtaposition between evangelical theology and and culture and as you said um it's really the culture that's that's driving the show for for many many evangelicals as opposed to a theology and i'm wondering you don't necessarily write about this as a historian in the book which you shouldn't but i'm just curious as to your opinion is a part of the reason that culture has kind of uh, as you say kind of defined the faith of many evangelicals is one of there could be many reasons. So so um, um, give me whatever you, you think. But I'm wondering too if a po- the possibility that the evangelical theology is is thin and perhaps a little hollow, and therefore it's able to be overrun by you know John Wayne and here in town folks in the family and Odyssey and all the you know, the, the the cultural uh, expressions that are, yeah. are are there. Whereas other Christian theologies, Catholic, for instance, I just can't imagine that happening, right? It's, I don't know if, if you have an opinion on that. I have a lot of thoughts on that. Uh, so putting my cards on the table, right? I said that I grew up in this Dutch reformed tradition and, and we identified over against evangelicals. And what that meant was we thought we were a lot smarter than evangelicals, right? We, we have this, you know, really deep theological tradition and, and we, um, we are just kind of steeped in, it in our communities and evangelicals don't have that as much more experiential, more individualistic, but also this is part of the story I tell in the book, like they made some, some strategic choices back in uh, mid-century to uh, in terms of Christian publishing, in terms of Christian radio, in terms of tapping this religious market for evangelistic purposes. But they, um, and here I'm drawing on the work of other scholars like Daniel Vaca and Daniel Silliman who, who describe how Christian publishing shifts from 19th century and early 20th century, it's largely along denominational lines, precisely because, um, well, you can be theologically distinctive there, and there's an appetite for that. Lutherans don't want what, you know, Wesleyans are talking about, but also they didn't have like bookstores and so on in many spaces. So the distribution of these um, books is through denominational structures, right? 
So that was more Christian publishing up until the 1940s. National Association of Evangelicals um, comes together and they say, hey, we need to band together across our differences and we need to reach all of the country into all the corners through Christian magazines, Christian radio, Christian books and bookstores. That's where we have the Christian Booksellers Association founded. Now, the thing is, if you want to appeal to a national market, you have to downplay those theological distinctives, right? Mm. You want the biggest market possible. Well, how do you do that and still be religious publishing Christian lifestyle books? And then this is the time, this is the era when Dobson comes up, you know, 1970, Dare to Discipline, right? It's, it's a book about how to raise children, deeply political, if you, if you are looking for that, uh, you know, theology is like part of it, but not in any explicit way. And so it's this kind of watered down version of Christian theology that becomes more about quote unquote, family values around social and political views. It becomes incredibly lucrative because they're right. The market is vast for this kind of stuff, um, but the theological distinctives really are tossed aside. And so you, you're not necessarily saying that it's because the theology, as I'm su suggesting, is, is thin, but it's more of a strategic move in attempt to, again, obviously sell books and, and influence the most people possible. I, I, I guess because you do talk about kind of um, a level of like biblical illiteracy, yeah. theological illiteracy, um, but perhaps that was driven in the mid part of the 20th century yeah. by a de-emphasis on theology. Yeah, the surveys that we have are more uh, more recent, uh, right? So so we could say it was an effect. But also, I mean, we just have to think, um, to a certain extent, we're talking about evangelicalism. To a certain extent, we're talking about popular religion, right? That theology tends to be a whole lot more important for theologians, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. For professors at seminaries. And so they're working out the finer details of premillennialism and postmillennialism and you know various sorts of dispensationalism and all of that. On the consumer side of things, you know, we can think of those guys as producers. On the consumer side of things, particularly over the last half century or so, consumers can have access to all kinds of theological traditions because you're tuning into this televangelist and then the one that comes on after him. And then you're picking up this book at the the, the Christian bookstore, then this one, and who knows where they're, you know, the theological traditions that they're coming out of. And that really starts to define popular evangelicalism, right? So again, it's it's a combination of both both kind of the theological substance and then the, the market um, uh, pressures really or opportunities. Um, and, and so it's it's kind of all of this. Now, it doesn't mean that theology doesn't play a role because you will certainly have organizations or institutions like um, in the Southern Baptist Convention, there, there are seminaries, you have the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which I call a kind of theological think tank for complementarianism. So you have um, theology being done, but it's often done, I would argue, in service to this cultural and political uh, movement rather than one that is really um, giving shape to the movement. And, and a clue that you have here is that, you know, if you have any differences here and say, okay, let's open the scriptures together. Let's look at what the scriptures say about immigration, about welcoming the stranger, right? Let's look at what the scriptures say about poverty. Let's look about loving your neighbor as yourself, turning the other cheek, those conversations will get you nowhere in conservative evangelical spaces. Yeah, but also, I mean, 
so I'm, I'm back to the sort of the consumerization part of it. I mean, it, it, the culture piece became so pervasive, like across all, as you said, it was, uh, it was all people were able to metabolize yes. that whether they were in these smart traditions, you know, and I'm using air quotes or in, you know, within the evangelical tradition, um, and what it has done to families and to women in particular. And I know that's a big part of your work too. Um, can you talk about that piece a little bit? Because uh, it has, uh, I think it, it, it has damaged who we are as an American culture in, in such monstrous ways. Yeah. Um, and I think you speak to that a little bit um, sort of in that, um, that that pre-1940s kind of space and then that after 1940s space mm -hmm. yeah so when i first started researching the book long ago almost 20 years ago now uh, and then i i set it aside i didn't stop paying attention so for the next decade i just kind of kept tabs on some of the men who were promoting the these you know ideals of christian manhood the rugged warrior masculinity and what I started noticing over that decade was one after another of these men became embroiled in scandal, uh, either sexual abuse, abuse of power, either directly as perpetrators or indirectly by supporting their friends who were the perpetrators, right? So much so that when I decided to um, write the book in the fall of, of 2016, it was actually right after the Access Hollywood tape released. And, and we had this, you know, Donald Trump on video bragging about assaulting women and all of the, the country was kind of looking, okay, what are white evangelicals going to do here? The answer was nothing. They were, they were not going to withdraw their support for Trump at that point. I mean, Wayne Grudem uh, briefly did prayed about it. And then by the end of the week was back supporting Trump. Most didn't even waver. Right. And that's when it clicked for me. I knew, I knew this. We, we had seen this before. This was nothing new protecting covering up for an abusive leader, the ends will justify the means, despite all of this lip service to family values, to protecting women, to, to purity, and, and um, you know, all of this rhetoric, that's, you know, don't be fooled. That's not really what's operative here. And that's when it clicked for me. So honestly, the first thing that I did when I decided to write this book was consult a lawyer because this was pre me too and pre church too when I started writing Jesus and John Wayne. And so these stories of abuse largely lived on survivor blogs and a few like very local kind of news stories, but they weren't national news stories. And that happened as I was writing then the Houston Chronicle and the SBC came out other other reports on inter, um, independent fundamental Baptist abuse. And, and so, so then I, I could safely um, include it and that's the last chapter of the book and it, it all fits together. And these stories are devastating. And it's not just that there are, are kind of perpetrators that there are bad guys who who abuse women who abuse the vulnerable um it's to me that interest is primarily in the community 
how is it that quote unquote good Christian people time and again end up siding with the perpetrators, defending them, demanding that victims forgive abusers, demanding that they keep their mouth shut and it's the victims and their families who are the ones kicked out of churches, kicked out of organizations over and over again. I mean, just this week, we're looking at the um, new story at Christianity Today on uh, the way that victims of abuse were treated in John MacArthur's uh, church. And just watching the reactions here, again, just the instinct to circle the wagons, to cover it up and to blame the victims and blame anybody who is bringing light to their story. Um, so these are pervasive patterns and the stories honestly are devastating, not just sexual abuse, but just the, the um, genuine oppression that women, girls, experience in these communities. And since I wrote the book, I, I, I have heard from hundreds of these women and it's really devastating. So have, have you gotten feedback from evangelicals and on, on this book? And have you gotten feedback from liberals on this book? Liberals love it. Uh, so, right. I think, um, here we are. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I think it, it helps explain this culture that otherwise is, it's kind of hard if you're inside the evangelical world, like you just, this is your, your, your space, you get it, right? You, you understand. We know who James Dobson focus on the family is. We know who John Eldridge was like every, every white evangelical guy, uh, over the age of 30 has read Eldridge in a small group with his buds, you know, like this is, this is the world, but from the outside, they're usually just seeing like survey data. Or they're seeing like this glimpse of, you know, maybe Paula White and Donald Trump. And they're like, who are these people? And, and you know, they just seem so inexplicable. And I think one of the things this book does is, is it, it makes sense. And in fact, I've had a number of um, non-evangelical readers who say that this book gave them much more empathy for evangelicals because it helps them understand there's a logic here. They, they don't agree with it, but they can see how generations of evangelicals can grow up into this and embrace these values. Among evangelicals, um, a bit divided, uh, um, there's, there is some pushback certainly, um, but much less than I anticipated. So the pushback comes primarily from a small number of very vocal um, conservative evangelical uh, men who, um, don't like what I've said about them and don't like the connections that I've drawn. And so if you're on social media, what was that? Right. Cause they're supposed to be the cool guy. Right. Well, and I mean, and I'm calling them out and I'm uh, the abuse of power and I'm calling out the whole system saying, this is not just bad apples. You guys have to take another look at this, right? You are all complicit in this. So it, it's, it's a pretty harsh. I mean, the subtitle is how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. So I didn't expect it to go over super well with a lot of evangelicals. What did surprise me is just how popular it has been among evangelicals, including, um, you know, complementarian white evangelical men who say there is truth here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so Russell Moore and Walter Kim and, and like many evangelical leaders have me on their podcasts, invite me into their spaces. And it is evangelicals who made this book a bestseller and evangelicals who are keeping it mm -hmm. out there. Um, and so I'm really grateful to the many evangelicals who have read this book and who have, um, wrestled with it with with remarkable humility yeah i wonder if they have felt just as trapped 
um, and 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 like stuck in a system that yeah, yeah. and just just that frustration of like you know what is happening here what and it, it became clearer in the Trump years I think for many but for for others it came sooner especially for women right because they are true believers they believe that you know that they they want to do Jesus you know follow mm-hmm. Jesus they they want to serve God they they love their churches and they're they're taught all of these things and then they look around them and see how people are treated and they look mm-hmm. at and they or they encounter abuse what does that do to your faith when the religious authorities are the ones perpetrating the abuse or covering mm-hmm. it up? Right. And so I think it's been, it's made a lot of people just um, really um, it, it's helped people make sense of what they were already seeing, but now they know it's, it's not just them. And now they, they know that there's something much bigger going on and they have a way of making sense of their own experiences. Okay, Jeff, before Kristen comes to Colorado Springs, what do we want our people to hear? Do you have any last question, comment, thought, something about your event coming up, even though I know it's going to be packed? I want you to say something anyway. Sure, absolutely. Um, I I think one thing I'll add that um, Kristen talks about in the book, but there's um, with this kind of rise in at least expressed Christian nationalism, yeah, particularly the kind we saw in 2021, January 6th. Um, I think those uh, you're going to try to make more explicit the linkage between this kind of toxic evangelical masculinity and this rise in it in Christian nationalism, at least the expression of it. Not that it hasn't been around for a long time, yeah. but now people are completely fine, obviously taking over the Capitol building. So um, that'll be a, a part of your talk on February 23rd. Absolutely. This this militant Christian masculinity only makes sense in a Christian nationalist context. You take away the Christian nationalism, there's no need for the warrior masculinity anymore. Thank you. Um, and I should say, too, uh, you know, we have registration for the event, but um, anyone is free to show up. Um, and you you may be turned away, but we're going to do our best to have a, and Chris, I don't think you know, there's a live simulcast of the event, in addition to it being uh, taped and put on YouTube. So, Hopefully that will um, defray some of the uh, people who are upset that can't get in, but it's a good problem to have. And it, it speaks to Kristen and her book, and we're just thrilled to host her. I'm thrilled to come there. I There's a whole chapter on Colorado Springs in the book. And so it's really pretty. I haven't been back in a long time. And so I'm pretty thrilled to get to bring uh, some of these stories into that space. So thank you. Absolutely. The event is uh, Thursday, February 23rd at 6 o'clock p.m. Uh, at the Ent Center for the Arts, which is at 5225 North Nevada Avenue. Kristen, you'll love this space. It's a relatively new um, art center. It looks like a Frank Geary piece of architecture, but it's it's a wonderful space. Um, and uh, yeah, again, we're going to I'm working on a live simulcast as well. I'll send that out to all the registrants and to people on Facebook who decided to come. But anyway, we're very excited. Um, to to have you come and speak. Thank you. Can't wait to be there. And if we um, have access to that um, simulcast, we will post it on our website, jhltb.com, so people can have access to that as well. Um, Kristen, thank you so much for your work in the world and for joining us. Um, We at Jesus Has Left the Building are super happy to be sponsoring this event with so many other great organizations, Um, and we're grateful that you um, were willing to come and join us for a few minutes on our podcast. And of course, Jeff, thanks 
thanks to you. Um, we love for always. We do love <laughs> Jeff. We love Jeff. Very and mutual. Kristen, we love you too. Just, we don't know you as well. <laughs> so thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you both oh, thank for being you. here. If you like what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com backslash J-H-L-T-B. This podcast is made possible by the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ Tributary Fund. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world.